Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Newsflash, people are stressed. And they are stressed to the point that they are willing to pay to relieve it. An amusement facility in Canada has created a rage room in which guests can relieve stress by smashing things. Thunderdome Amusements in Calgary provides golf clubs, sledgehammers, pipes, and baseball bats to people so they can release their frustrations by breaking office equipment and other items. The director of Thunderdome says, you go and get to smash stuff and we provide full-blown protective gear. You wear a face mask, chest protector, coveralls, gloves, and you must have closed-toed shoes. In addition to providing stress relief and anger management, spending time in the rage room can also help promote a healthy lifestyle, he said. You're in the room for 45 minutes smashing all these items. You come out of the room and you'll be sweating and you'll feel better. Guests are also welcome to bring their own items. He ended the interview by saying, a lot of people with desk jobs are excited to smash printers. <laughs> Packages began at about $20 per person. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. We will continue studying the psalm that we studied last time we were together. And in it, we're going to see the proper way to handle and view stress. Look at verse 7 with me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. The root word for distress is the word stress. It's the feeling of being pressed in upon all sides. If there were ever a time people were stressed, it is today. Things we didn't even think about 20 years ago now dominate our thoughts. For example, there was a time when the main thing you worried about flying with an airline was that all your luggage would end up in Toledo. But now you scan the other passengers and if anyone is of Middle Eastern descent, it raises your level of concern a little bit. Our culture is a very stressful culture, so this really shouldn't come as much of a shock. Jesus said, in this world you will have your best life now, so don't worry, for life for you will always be groovy. But that's not what he said, was it? What he actually said was, in this world you will have not might have or may have, you will have tribulation, trials, and troubles. And so feeling stressed and being in stressful situations is not a sin. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in our next slide. 2 Corinthians 1.8 We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. 
That's easy to read, but a whole lot harder to endure, isn't it? Listen again. How were they burdened? Paul says it was beyond measure and above strength. How bad was it? Paul said they despaired even of life. If David would have owned a New Testament, I bet that verse would have been highlighted. Because if anyone knew what stress could do, it was King David. Even from his youth, he saw the effects that stress could have. We only have to go back to the day he met Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, we read these words. I've had Lisa to include them also. And the Philistines said, this is Goliath, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now we here see that Goliath starts trash-talking there in verse 10. He says, fee, fi, fo, fum. He really didn't say that. That's Jack and the Beanstalk. And that's not in the Bible if you're trying to locate it. Goliath shouts in arrogance, I defy the armies of Israel. Actually, the word defy is too weak. It would be better translated, I scorn the armies of Israel, or I mock the armies of Israel. We are then told in verse 11 that they were dismayed. That word dismayed hardly captures what the word means in the original language. The word in Hebrew means to be broken mentally. This isn't my, a, my teen isn't listening, or my car is broke down, or my gout is acting up. And I realize all those things present their challenges. But this word means to be in a trial to where you are pushed to the edge and you are concerned for your sanity. It means to be completely and utterly disabled in the face of what you are encountering. It's the kind of trial that rises up with all its strength, with all its mocking. It scorns our strength and it mocks our faith. It's the kind of trial that refuses to be ignored. It's a, I'm at the end of my rope kind of trial. It's a, fills the entire radar screen until it's all I can see type of trial. It's a, dominate all your senses type of trial. It's a, I can't get away from it morning and evening until I'm paralyzed with fear type of trial. So you find yourself in a valley, and those are bad enough in life. Dealing with a job loss or dealing with a health situation or dealing with some strained relationship or some ongoing problem in your marriage or battle with the flesh. But now in that valley, all of a sudden a giant has been thrown into the mix. These are the type of trials that only God can get us through. And these are the type of trials that will make us cry out unto God. Notice it says, I cried to my God, and he heard my voice. If you were to cross-reference that, you would find another man who used this verse as his very own prayer when he was in a tight spot. The man's name, Jonah. The place, the gut of a great fish. And yet in his trial, I want us to learn another lesson, and it is this. What is amazing to me is that Jonah didn't start praying the minute he was swallowed. Now I would hope, for me, 
As soon as I passed over that slimy tongue, my prayer, my prayer meeting would begin at that point. As we've learned over the years, I don't even have the stomach to gut a fish. So being in the gut of a fish is disgustingly horrifying. There are things worse than death in my estimation. But anyway, how long did Jonah endure that before he finally cried out to the Lord? Three days. you got to be kidding me. He sat in those gastric juices for 72 hours with stuff floating around him and he never prayed. Three days and three nights before he finally prays. Why do you suppose he waited so long? I suggest it was for the same reason that we often do. When we are in a place where we know we have rebelled against the will of the Lord and we are in a tight spot because of it, we are prone to think, no doubt I have blown it so badly and have grieved God so deeply that he won't listen to anything that I say. Therefore, why pray? If I were God, I wouldn't listen to me either. We have the mistaken idea that God only hears the prayers of good people. But he turns a deaf ear to those who are in a place of rebelliousness or weakness. So often we can mistakenly think that our relationship with God is based upon the subtle supposition that if we are really good, if I'm reading my Bible, going to church, fasting and praying, then God will hear my prayers. But if I'm not, then he's not interested. But that's just not true. As Jonah is about to experience, God is gracious and merciful, kind and compassionate, ready to forgive and eager to respond to his children no matter where they're at or why they're there. If you know the story, the well suddenly felt the urge to regurge, and Jonah was unceremoniously deposited upon the beach. And that teaches us another lesson. Like Jonah, the next time you feel down in the mouth, remember Jonah. He came out all right. You see, because he was in his mouth and he got vomited, see. That's, that was the joke there. I could have shared this joke. Where do you find Jonah in the yellow pages? Underwater. Uh, it's all part of my shtick. So back to the Bible. Thank you. If you feel like nothing is working with your job, with your relationships, or with your family, if you feel like your life is going nowhere, that nothing is making sense, take heart. For even when we think that nothing is working out, as we learned last week, God has promised that all things work together for our good. You see, while Jonah felt forsaken and forgotten, blinded and in the dark for three days and three nights, when he thought his life was going nowhere, guess what? The whale was still moving. Where was it going? It was swimming from somewhere out in the middle of the Mediterranean off the coast of Spain back to the place where God had wanted Jonah all along. Jonah didn't have a clue that anything was happening until he suddenly found himself on a beach in Assyria. Side note, God will always get you where he wants you to be, so immediate obedience is always the best way. The same is true for us. If you call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you, 
you'll find out that eventually you'll be right where you were supposed to be. That through the days and the nights when you thought nothing was happening, unbeknownst to you, the whale of your circumstances was moving. And so perhaps you can echo David's testimony here. Is this what you have done when trouble threatens to overwhelm you? Have you called upon the Lord? Have there been occasions when you know that the Lord has heard your desperate cry? Because we are simply foolish if we think we can do this in our own strength. There is a reason we are likened to sheep. We have no strength in and of ourselves. As Girl Irwin says, we're not Rambo, we're Lambo. And so we need somebody greater. That's why we are likened to sheep. Sheep are about the weakest of all creatures, and they certainly aren't the smartest of animals. For example, do you know anyone who has taught their sheep to roll over? Have you ever witnessed a circus sideshow featuring Mazadon and his dancing sheep? No. Sheep are just too dumb. And worse than that, they're defenseless. They have no fangs or claws. They can't bite you, and they can't outrun you. That's why you never see sheep as mascots for sports teams. We've heard of the St. Louis Rams and the Chicago Bulls, but the New York Lambs? Who wants to be represented by a lamb? To just be honest, sheep are pretty worthless except for sweaters and donor kebabs. And did you know that a sheep is the only animal that is symbiotic with man? That means a sheep is completely dependent upon man for their survival. And yet man is the greatest of all created beings because we bear God's image. And so when you get a sheep that has a good shepherd, they now can enjoy life under the care of that shepherd. The same is true for us and our good shepherd. And so for someone like me who has trouble getting directions to the beach, a shepherd isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's a wonderful thing. Verse 8, please. And the earth shook and trembled, the foundation of heavens quaked, and they were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. The picture begins with the reminder of what happened when God met his people at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses in Exodus 19, where we see the shaking of the earth, smoke, and fire. But there is something else here. The words in the center of this subsection sum it up. It declares that all this happened because God was angry. And if God is angry, then the whole of creation should tremble and shake. He was not angry, of course, because David had cried out to him. He was angry because his king, his chosen one, had been threatened with destruction. Now people sometimes object to the idea that God can be angry. And yet that is one of the most wonderful things about the character of God. Some people like to envision him as an old grandfatherly type who just chuckles when men commit sins by saying, well, boys will be boys. But I think it's good news that God is angry about violence and hatred and death 
and destruction, about war and starvation and cruelty. Would we rather that God didn't care about these things? Because deep down we know that men should be held accountable for their actions. That's why if someone blows by you doing 130 on the 460, you wish for two things. One, you hope there's a state trooper nearby so they get what they deserve. And two, you wish your car could go that fast. <laughs> Just being honest. Verse 10, please. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made, he made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Did you notice who now is included in this picture? The word them is used twice in verse 15, and it refers to the enemies we heard way back in verse 4. They were the ones God came down from heaven to deal with. And also notice that brightness went out for him so that the coals of fire were kindled. These were the coals of his anger that we saw in verse 9. The whole picture is vivid and poetic. Imagine the Lord pulling back the curtains of heaven. Thick darkness is his carpet and he is borne by angels. The reality pictured is awesome in the truest sense of that word. It simply declares he came down. Upon reading that, my mind went back to another time that the Lord came down in the book of Exodus. Imagine the scene. Moses, who was once a prince in Egypt, has been watching sheep for around 40 years. So here's Moses on the backside of the desert, day after week, after month, after year. Decades go by, and finally something happens. Among the many bushes in the wilderness, one burns brightly without being consumed, causing Moses to eventually realize that the Lord was with him. But that's not the most amazing part to me. The most amazing part is what God says from the midst of that bush. This is our next slide, Exodus 3:7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because they are taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. What I want us to notice is the actions of God in this passage. First, he tells Moses, I have seen the oppression. What has happened to God's people had not escaped his all-seeing eye. Secondly, I have heard their cry. That teaches us that not only does God see where we are, he also stoops down to listen to us. Thirdly, God says, I know their sorrows. So not only does he see and hear, he also understands how we feel about the things that he sees and hears. The result of all that, the next verse, God simply says, I have come down to deliver them. But not only to deliver them, but to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. hope that encourages you this morning. We don't have a God who is aloof and uncaring 
nor do we have one that winks at the sin and the depravity in this world. No, he sees all these things, but when his children cry out, he will quickly answer. This reminded me of the parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18. See if you can spot the difference between the unjust judge and God who is the just judge of the whole universe. Next slide, please. Now he was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect to cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus uses the account of the widow to teach what our attitude should be in prayer. But notice, he gives this parable not as a parallel, but as a contrast, for our situation is entirely different. First of all, we appear not before an unjust judge, but before a loving Father. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, the concept of God as a Father was foreign to the Jews. Paul would go on to address God as Abba, or Father. Thus, far from being just the judge, God is our loving Father, our Abba, our Dad. Second, we appear before God not as strangers, but as children. Once a photographer captured on film Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia in his chambers at his massive desk, when one of his grandchildren came bursting into the room, the photograph shows the judge looking up and smiling from ear to ear. It's amazing the access a person can have if someone loves them. No matter how important a man or woman might be, his son or daughter can come into his presence anytime. That is the privilege we have as children of the God of the universe. Thirdly, this woman was a widow, but we are a bride. Big difference. A widow feels all alone, not so a bride. Fourth, the widow went alone. But we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ stands next to us. And lastly, to get help, the widow went to the court of a law firm, but we come to the throne of grace. Verse 16, please. And as I read the final four verses for this morning, see if you can guess what Old Testament story that took place that he is applying to his life. The God of that story is still around. They even made a movie about it. I'll give you a clue. As I read it, get a visual image of Charlton Heston in your mind. Verse 16. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, even those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. What event is he speaking of? Remember the movie starring Charlton Heston? Now, if Planet of the Apes was your guess, you are completely wrong and carnal. The movie was the Ten Commandments, and the scene in vision is the parting of the Red Sea. You see, for David, that was just not a dusty historical event. To him, it was the standard of what God can do. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have the Red Sea, but we have the cross as the greater standard. And since we have been reminded of Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, it is very likely that David chose the phrase, he drew me out of many waters there in verse 17, very carefully. The verb translated, he drew me out, sounds like Moses, doesn't it? It occurs in only one other place in the Old Testament, Exodus 2.10, where the daughter of Pharaoh gives Moses his name, because she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what the name Moses means. David's experiences of escaping many threats to his life were remarkable enough. But David seems to be suggesting that they were comparable to what the Lord did in the days of Moses. When Moses himself was rescued from the waters of the Nile, then led the people of Israel in their rescue from slavery in Egypt and their encounter with God at Mount Sinai. Moses could have said, We have the sea in front of us and the mountains around us, and Pharaoh and his army behind us. And all we did was call out, and God took us right through the middle of it. The good news for us is that God still does that exact same thing today. Sometimes God will let us know, I'm not going to get rid of the problems. Instead, I'm going to take you directly through those problems. In the words of the late Andre Crouch, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus, and through it all, I've learned to trust in God. And as we finish up this morning, a phrase that struck me is where it says, the day of my calamity. We have those sometimes, don't we? Days that are so tough that we long for the night to come. In his book, Worry Less, Live More, Robert J. Morgan illustrates the fact that many society are very conscious of this kind of anxiety. He writes, Did you know that Amazon keeps track of your electronic book highlights? When ebook owners mark sentences, the online retailer knows about it and notes it. Recently, Amazon released a list of the most popular passages in some of its best-selling books, such as The Hunger Games, the Harry Potter series, and Pride and Prejudice. Also released was the most highlighted passage in the Holy Bible. I expected America's favorite biblical portion to be John 3.16, Psalm 23, or maybe the Lord's Prayer. But no, it was a less prominent text, but one that's striking a deep chord in today's worried world. It was Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which reads, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? That tells us that a lot of people are looking for help in dealing with this thing called life. 
So I think that we should all follow David's model. You see, David's outlook was determined by his uplook. David just didn't look inside of himself because that would make him depressed. David just didn't look around at the circumstances of his life because that would have made him distressed. Instead, despite the circumstances, he looked up and believed God. And that's what gave him rest. And that's why he was blessed. And I urge us all to follow his example. Father, this is a hard world that we live in. And it's only going to get worse. Your word promises that. And so, Father, we do have no idea what is going to be in front of us in the months and years to come. But, Lord, we do know that you can take us through it. And we just pray, Father, that you would once again fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a hunger to know you as we never have before. And let us be lights to those around us, Lord, who are also going through this wicked world but without you and the hope of the gospel. Do that work in us, I pray, Father. In Christ's name, amen. We don't have a song to end, so love one another.